0: Hello and welcome to the Film Ireland podcast. I'm Gemma Crane. I'm chatting with director Alan Gilson about his wonderful documentary, The Ghosts of Bagatonia. So thank you so much for chatting with us.
1: A pleasure. Delighted to.
0: So it's a it's a gorgeous film. um, And I just was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about its inception. Like, I know it's a real art project. I, I read the director's notes and, and you've got a good sense of the world, but it's very distinct in style. So tell me a little bit about like what your ideas for starting off were and if and if it stayed true to that as you went along.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, I always kind of start any film on a kind of instinct. You know, sometimes people think you're a very clear idea. But for me, it's always just it's a kind of instinct. And I kind of find the film in the process of making it. And and with this, with the Ghost of Bagatonia, it kind of had, I suppose, there were three kind of strands to it. One was uh, many, many years ago when I was in Trinity, I got a scholarship which was in honour of a great man called Con Leventhal, who was a really close friend of Samuel Beckett's. He was a drama critic, sort of a man of Bagatonia in a way. And so, so I always, you know, because that scholarship always had this kind of curiosity about Con Leventhal, And the scholarship was organised by another friend of both Leventhal's and Beckett's, a man, wonderful man, called Professor Owen O'Brien, who's a very eminent cardiologist, but also a great man of letters and has written a lot on literary themes. And it was really, Owen introduced me to the notion of Bagatonia, you know, the idea that there was this place, um, this kind of geographic space, uh, which sort of radiated out from the canal and Bagot Street. If you saw Bagot Street Bridge, anybody who knows it, as a crossroads, um, Bagotonia radiates out from that central point. And, um, and I suppose I knew a little bit about it. I knew all the headlines, you know, the kind of presence of Patrick Cavanagh and Brendan Bean and Flann O'Brien. Um, and then, I suppose, talking to Owen and reading his own writing about Bagotonia, I realised... You know, that there was this entire kind of movement of artists, writers, uh, that grew up as a kind of counterculture, you know, in the 40s, 50s, and echoing into the 60s, 70s, 80s, perhaps, um, of kind of wild artists who were living a life kind of in contradiction to the kind of Catholic mores of the time. Um, at, and that time and all those artists, many of whom are forgotten. Um, I think definitely represents a kind of cultural movement. So that was one strand um, and and really Owen O'Brien needs to take the credit for that. So the second strand was I also was introduced through Owen to a wonderful artist, kind of largely forgotten now, called Neville Johnson. And Neville was originally from Manchester, but moved to Belfast and finally came down to Dublin. And he was a primarily a visual artist, a painter, extraordinary painter, uh, also a writer and a photographer. And Neville took these extraordinary photographs with a Leica camera in the 50s of Dublin. I suppose like a lot of outsiders, he came to Dublin and he realised that there was something precious in this area that he was going to document with these extraordinarily beautiful, thousands of beautiful black and white photos of the area, of Bagatonia and wider area. And you know, I kind of liked, I mean, the photographs are stunning, beautiful. Many of them are in the film, but also I liked the idea of Neville. So that was the second tra- strand. The third strand was a bit more personal, which is that I, I grew up in what is called Bagatonia. I grew up in Raglan Road, you know, the now mythical Raglan Road. And, you know, my childhood was wandering those streets and it was very strange uh, and kind of wonderful place at that time. Um Uh, Not so much as it is now, where, you know, every square meter of Dublin four and Dublin two is now kind of, uh, you know, is, is kind of worth a fortune and everything's been changed and cleaned up. And, you know, there was a kind of more magic about it, or at least that's how I remember it. So it was those three strands of kind of this kind of memoir of my own childhood and rediscovering that and that place with earlier echoes from the kind of writers and, and kind of also then visually inspired by Neville Johnson. So that's a very long answer to it.
0: No, a no, no, it's perfect because it is. You do get the strands like where it's paying homage to these um, literary giants. Then translating, not it's not like it's not the right thing, but kind of taking their work and, and looking at it in a fresh way with your own visuals in, the, in a visual poem style. And how that integrates back through their lives and back through the place as it is now. And then what I found as a viewer, very jarring, but enjoyable, like in, in, in an enjoyable way, was how you're looking at something and you you don't know if you're tricked if this was an original thing from the, like the olden and past and then something will reveal actually no this is completely modern day or someone will walk into shot and you're like oh okay no this is this is not archival this is like this is newly recorded or like or the poem even is a modern piece and not you know like looking back and I was like actually it was it was it was very um it was very sort of intricate so you mm. were sort of as if you were like figuring out out a lot of stuff because like, OK, some of the classics. Yes, I, I would know. But then there were voices in there that I wouldn't necessarily be too familiar with. I'm not okay with a lot of of those works. So I was like, it was just very interesting. Um,
1: yeah, I think you're you know, you're absolutely right. And I think I mean, first of all, it's not, you know, for for listeners, it's not a conventional documentary in any way. And I think a lot of people have called it film poem. And I think that's probably more more accurate and You know, for me, I've always been interested in the idea of, you know, the past and the present kind of coexisting, even the future. But that's probably another discussion. But, you know, that that in any one moment, in any one place, we carry the history, we carry the echoes, you know, of what's happened before. You know, I love I love that thing. If you can sit somewhere or walk down a lane. But also be aware of what's happened before. You know that there are lanes and streets and canals in 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 Bagatonia. You know that that Cavanagh walked down, that Beckett walked down, but that my mother and father had walked down, and millions of others. You know, and that somehow the memory of those people, the memory of those experiences, all kind of coexist in some space. You know, whether it's poetic or memory, or however you want to articulate it, and um. And the film tried to capture that, that a place isn't just a moment in time, it's it also carries its history. So what I tried to do with the film, and again, this kind of evolved and was very kind of um, instinctive process, was kind of interweave writings from these various writers and artists. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, the very famous ones, you know, the Cavanagh, Brian, uh, Beckett you know, um, being, but also less famous. You know, it's interesting what history forgets. You know, there's a lot of extraordinary writers that have fallen out of.
0: And that. women, that's a, you've you've great female voices in there that were strong and, and bold and and that were amazing quotes. And that was, that was gorgeous. I actually sent one to my brother. I was like, that's a really good, I never yeah. even heard of her. <laughs>
1: and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the women, of course, you know more than I have, uh, you know, fell out of history. You know that there was an extraordinary movement of a very radical women as well, um, many of whom again have been forgotten. I mean, there's lots of people that we remember. You know, the kind of Mary Lavin, Elizabeth Bowen, um, Maura Laverty. They were all they people that generation. A little later, people like Ivan e. Boland. Um, but there were also many, many writers, and some I've tried to bring out in the film um uh, you know two poets one etna mccarthy who is i think she was a a doctor medical student but also i think a wonderful poet you know who who seems very resonant to somebody like sylvia plath to me but etna mccarthy was also you know i think an early love of samuel beckett and some of beckett's greatest love poems were written about her and then she in turn later went on to marry Con Leventhal um but but also people like Blonnet Solkelt, who there's a couple of her poems uh, spoken by Camilla Sullivan in the in the film. and you know, again, really, but this huge, huge amount of them there's a there's a wonderful book uh, by an academic Deirdre Brady in um in Limerick and she's written recently a wonderful book about the literary coteries of women in that time, yeah.
0: But it was but it's but it was great to to hear those voices and put on and like and very much so naturally weaving through it very on point with theme. And they gave like this kind of broader sense of the world where I do think like traditionally speaking, like it has just been a place kind of celebrated for by men, and, you know, women maybe get a look in the yeah. odd time. So, like, it was it was lovely to to see that in there. And but I mean, it it is the world. It was it was the the scope of the world. What I found very interesting, and I know visual poem was the word that was thrown out. But I kind of get a more <clears throat> it was almost like not a frantic one. Like I think that's the but stream of consciousness where it would almost there'd almost be a theme and a, and, a, and a space and you'd languish in that theme in space for a while. And I found that to be very interesting because I feel like that's naturally how my mind works. Mm. You know, you're 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 twigged by something and it might be by, you know, um how religion has impacted the works. And and we kind of sit there for a while and 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 kind of like dwell in that theme before moving on to something. And it's not as structured as a chapter or an episode episodic piece but it's more like it's more it's more like you're going with this flow and one thing kind of conjures another thing and that's what I found to be mm-hmm. very interesting and then you and I was like was that something that you knew it would take that structure because that's something again that I haven't felt done that way too often before
1: yeah I mean I think you know in the same way maybe a Poems have a certain inner logic, which isn't necessarily a, a narrative logic or a linear na- logic. You know, I think in the process of editing this uh, with my wonderful editor, Bjorn McGilla, who had a huge hand in this. Um, yes, yeah, certain themes emerged, you know, certain themes, uh, you know, whether it was love, whether it was drink, whether it was religion, uh, whether it was kind of madness, whether it was death. Um, and and I tried to weave in some of the writings and the poems, you know, also with my own kind of reflections on that time. Um, you know, reflections that, you know, it was interesting when I showed the film first to my sister because there's various kind of meandering reflections on my own kind of childhood. And she said, well, no, that's wrong. Like that's it, you know. And, you know, I like that idea that memory is kind of just what you preserve. And it's not even, you know, sometimes what you preserve isn't true. Um, uh, and I like that kind of existence that, you know, any of our experience, the world is fluid. You know, it's not, you know, the factual events are part of it, but they're not exclusively part of it. Our memories, our feelings. And, and in a way, particularly in the past, all those merge and, and fuse. And, and I suppose I tried to do that in the film and then, you know, obviously to give it some structure weave them around certain themes as we moved through.
0: And actually, that's very interesting because I do think the way you look at the subject, the various subject matters, like you kind of go, this is that life. You show us what we've always seen in that, you know, this is this whimsical world of creativity, of people's drinking and and having pints. And then you kind of go into there's like actually a kind of darker side Mm -hmm. to it where it's, you know, excess and like what would have been considered to be amorality at the time. But then, and then you can kind of, I, I don't know, you kind of get like this little twinge of the toll that it took on them where they were kind of, you know, and then, and then also like you're going, you know, these are these amazing figures who've done such beautiful works, but then there were also kind of lecherous lads hanging out in a pub <laughs> chasing after like young women in their 20s. Uh, and it was like, and you get all that in there. And I was like, do you know what? That's a like, it, it did feel like a much more rounded view where you're not going you know it's it's not all great it's not all bad it's complex
1: like that's no I think you're right and and I think you know I think there's always a dangerous sentimentality with these things and I you know I want to avoid that and I think I think many of the writers I feature you know sentimentality would be something they'd abhor but you know there was a darkness you know the you know there were obviously fantastic times but Part of those fantastic times, of course, was drink and drink, you know, killed many of them. And there was darkness and there was violence. And, you know, I think that whole canvas of life had to be celebrated, you know, you know, and there's various illusions. You know, even to, you know, I remember as a child growing up, you know, occasionally there'd be a body discovered in the canal, you know, we can romanticize the canal, of course, and it's beautiful and you know, we can think of Patrick Kavanagh and Leafy with Love Banks and all that. But also as a child, I remember these strange kind of bits of news that you'd hear you know, that a body, a dismembered body was found in a suitcase. or You know, and also at the time it's changed now, uh, In thankfully, in some ways, I guess. But, you know, you know, that area around Bagot Street and Fitzwilliam Square and Mount Street you know, very beautiful, elegant part of Dublin, you know, during the day, celebrated, of course, by people like Louis Macneice as well. But at night, you know, when I was young, it was lined with prostitutes, you know, and there was a whole darkness and another kind of side to it. So in a way, I was trying to not celebrate, but incorporate all those aspects, you know, that I, I, I think there's a lovely... Phrase I think Owner O'Brien might use it in the film where he talks about Beckett and Beckett realizing, you know, before he moved to Paris, you know, that it, you know, that the, the snug in a pub could also be the tomb. You know, that drink drink could liberate you and uh free you in certain ways, but it could also kill you.
0: Yeah. And you do get the tapped um the drama underneath it all, I think, and that's something that's like it's not whitewashed. It's not going, oh, they were they were so, like, you're actually like, you know, this is it's, it is sort of pouring gasoline on a fire where obviously like these are people that are creative, but also deeply troubled. And I was like, it was it was an interesting watch in that way. And I think one of the reasons why it was it was good because it wasn't just one like hero's journey story of this man made great, in which case you are likely to to not look at the the three hundred and sixty of of the situation. Mm-hmm. Like you're telling it from everyone's point of view, you're you're telling it almost the place as a, as a whole. So it's like it's it's a very different structure, I think, that we're used to, like than that react yeah. structure. But it it felt very true.
1: Yeah, I, I I generally I think I'm drawn to. I mean, I've made all sorts of films, but. You know, in this sort of more experimental work, I'm kind of drawn to, you know, almost I I, I al- always think of kind of analogies in music, like it's almost like jazz, you know, that you kind of find your way through it and, you know, you're riffing on different things. And, um, you know, I mean, I enjoy the linear narrative film as much as the next person, of course. But that's not always how life unfolds, you know, and I think it's quite nice to, you know, just to play with the form a bit. And, you know, the actual making of this, you know, much of it was made during lockdown and COVID and much, you know, and that had a strange feeling in the city anyway. And and often I would go in very early at more in the morning. Uh, often, I mean, the city was deserted anyway, but you know, often at the weekends when it was really deserted and I would just literally walk the area, you know, endlessly kind of committed to kind of walking everywhere, every small alleyway down the canals, back roads, down wastelands, just with this small a camera and, and film as I went along and just respond to to what I saw. And, um, you know, and that, of course, is very liberating, you know, as opposed to going out with the big crew and, you know, you've 10 hours and you've got to shoot such and such. Yeah. And just
0: like the the that that artist, the, the photographer, that like that's like you are sort of walking in his footsteps, just telling okay. it from a very different perspective. And the creative observing the creative observing the creatives, like that's an interesting yeah. um, kind of way to 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 kind of observe this it's like it's once removed once removed so it's very someone who's part of that world
1: emotionally too you know I often think what strikes you visually if you're shooting any film you know there's a kind of emotional response you know why does a certain light at a certain time in a certain place move you to film as opposed to someone else and and also I you know I did like the the idea of um you know, that Neville had walked the streets. And I remember going through his archive in UCD and he was very meticulous, you know, in lots of ways. You could have seen him as a kind of chaotic artist, but, you know, looking at his notebooks, which is kind of intimate, you know, you could see he was very meticulous in noting what he did and when he did it and how he did it. And to walk in his footsteps, you know, there was one lovely little synchronicity we discovered. You know, this film was funded by the Arts Council. And I I think... Neville Johnson would have got a grant from maybe the very first Arts Council for that Leica camera. And here we were all those years later, also with a Leica monochrome camera, which only shoots black and white, doesn't shoot colour, you know, kind of walking the same streets, you know. And that was, you know, again, he was one of the ghosts on my shoulder, you know, and that was a lovely kind of feeling. Um, Yeah. And it was really it was also nice. I mean, you know, I live in Wicklow now. It's not like you know, I'm returning to my home place from uh, deepest Latin America or something. You know, I pass through that area all the time. But there is something different to stopping and walking and consciously, you know, rather than rushing up Bagot Street to meet somebody about something, you know, that I was actually walking the kind of streets of my childhood with a view to listening out or um, absorbing the past or 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 remembering the past and and it's interesting in anybody's life you know what you remember you know if if you went you know that feeling when anybody returns to say the house they grew up in as a child you know what sparks a memory it's not always the obvious thing and um, and it's quite interesting to you know to to have the the, the pleasure of doing that you know to actually just wander and listen and think
0: And do you feel the space of moving out helps you see it clearly? Or would you be able to turn an objective eye to that space anyway? Like if you had stayed there? I think
1: I think it's the you know, it's that idea of of actually, you know, considering something, you know, we're all busy, we're all running all the time, you know, and and we rarely give ourselves the time to look or listen, which in the end of the day is kind of key to filmmaking and um i think it's just that conscious effort of saying okay now you know i have walked bagot street you know ten thousand times in my life maybe more and but this time this one time this dawn on a sunday morning uh i will walk it with a kind of attention uh, with a kind of conscious looking you know and i think and i do think that's kind of fundamental to any kind of filmmaking you know it sounds kind of banal but you know that you actually look and listen and it's not always what you want or what you think or what you imagine it's to look and listen what's there and then what's that telling you
0: and a little bit about that process of of getting it so you were kind of walking it with the camera would you um, feed footage like is it something that you would have just done a shoot and you're like I want to get this 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 and this and this would it be something you're editing as you're going along and said
1: yeah. there was a certain amount of editing as we went along but there was also it's also not necessarily you know want it, it's what kind of would reveal itself you know I, I tried to you know of course there's all sorts of practical considerations come into play but i try particularly in a film like this to be as open to it to see well what what's presenting itself to me what you know rather than what i'm trying to force onto it you know what am i learning what am i seeing you know that i mightn't have seen before and what what memory is that sparking and you know the same applied when i was reading through you know reading through the the writers that are involved in the film, you know, what strikes me, you know, what, you know, rather than, you know, obviously we have kind of some of the greatest hits, you know, obviously we have Patrick Cavanaugh, you know, sort of singing Raglan Road, you know, but, but also I tried to look at the writings, um, not always going for the greatest hits, you know, um, but, but little moments that kind of spark a memory and even small moments of, of the writers that kind of aren't necessarily to the centre of, of the canon. You know, the critics like John Jordan, um, many, many people who, who've written about the area, about their... Uh, John Ryan, of course, who was a famous character, uh, people who wrote about their own memories and their own experiences, and just to kind of try and weave all that together.
0: And so you were saying this was kind of like you were editing as you're going along. How long did it take?
1: Um, A long time. You know, I'm never quite sure when things start and when they finish. Well, I'm kind of sure when they finish, but not always. But um, I mean, I suppose partly because of COVID kind of delayed things as well. Uh, It was probably over a couple of years. You know, I would have taken some footage. I would have started to read but then gradually, you know, things evolve. I couldn't really even put an exact time on it. You know, it could be.
0: And just so would you have done a very rough cut yourself and then brought it to Bjorn to edit it? Because if that's that kind of I presume he's not on call for
1: <laughs> that no. amount of time. No, no. Well, he might feel like that. But um, <laughs> no, no, I would, you know, I, I wouldn't do, do a rough cut. I would, you know. Uh, I've I've a great belief in the creativity of the editor, and they're, you know, uh, filmmakers are always gone on about the collaborative art, you know, uh, which is another way of saying it's really all about me, you know. But uh, but I really think everybody involved in the film, but editors in particular, are, you know, they're an, a great creative force, and and often in the case of say Bjorn, I would give him, you know, the material, and maybe we discuss general ideas, and then. You know, he'd bring his own spin to it, which would be you know exciting and fresh. And then you know we just tease it back and forth. There's no, at least with, for me, there's no kind of formal plan. It 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 emerges, yeah.
0: Gorgeous. And then to get those effects and the the layerings up, I presume is that like something again that's happening as you're going through, or would that be and would that be something that Bjorn would do, or would that be something that you'd send off to get effects done. You know, you want this layered. Like, how how does it work? Because it's...
1: I mean, Bjorn would do probably a rough uh, pass at it. And, and then, you know, again, you know, talking about the kind of creative people involved, you know, uh, you know, I, I've, I've worked a lot with Outer Limits, which are great post-production house in Dublin. Um, but Eugene McChrystal there, who would be, you know, on this, the online editor and the um, uh, the colorist or grader. You know, you bring you bring your idea to him. Okay, Eugene. Well, this is the kind of the idea. You know, it's going to mix here, but then he brings a whole layer of complexity. And says no. Well, let's have a look at this. Let's try that, uh, and that's another leap. And then you know, on on this particular project and, and others, but John Foley, who who is a wonderful, wonderful graphic designer. You know, and I think people often think, oh, graphics. He's a guy that comes up at the end and puts on the credits. But jo- John is a real kind of creative partner in this
0: because there's almost animation stuff yeah. through it. Like it's it's really it's very kind of textured as a yeah. as as
1: images go. And John would really engage in the subject and the theme and the fonts and and he's like another creative visual artist in it. You know, so we might have myself and Bjorn might think, oh, well, we'd love you know, to have these words of text here. But then John brings another layer of intelligence and and wonderful creativity, you know. And then I suppose the last person in that kind of uh, landscape of creativity is is Brian Crosby, who did the music, you know, uh, just an extraordinary musician. And um, that's another joy whereby, you know, you bring your finished film or your locked picture to him and then he brings a whole layer of you know emotion and beauty and musicality you know which is kind of and and i don't tend to interfere with that you know there's something mysterious about music and and like i would be a great believer you know and not like okay i want you to reproduce the guide or okay here i want the music to go up and i want this to happen and uh you know, the composing of music is almost like a response to the film, or it's a, you know, again, something like jazz. It's it's like it's one instrument responding to another. And, you know, I very much trust, you know, the composers, you know, that I've worked with, you know, I've done a lot also with Ray Harmon, um, you know, and, and other people. But Brian, you know, he just brought his own kind of layer to the film, you know, which which I was really thrilled with, you know, and he has great, great intelligence and ability, but great sensitivity to 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 the process.
0: There's a real range in the the soundscape to this. Um, there's a real range in the, the style of music. There's like, again, like it's it's lovely, it's layered. Then you kind of you do get that kind of it's integrated with the sound mix so well and I'm like just would that be part of the process back and forth with him and the post-production or is that all him
1: no no I, I mean absolutely um the the sound designer kind of mixer uh Stephen McHale you know again who's, he's also a musician uh but he would bring his layer you know I, I think I think the sound design is almost like um it's like another musical track you know, and I know himself and Brian would have talked back and forth. And you know, it's very important in any film that the sound design and the music complement. You know, they're not like two children fighting for attention. You know, they're they're two complementary forces. You know, and and of course nowadays, you know, there is a place where sound design and music kind of meet. You know, they're not they're not distinct different silos. Um, and you know, all those layers of of uh, artistry, you know, mix. And, you know, I love that, you know, combination of talents coming together. Um, and I think at, at its best, it doesn't always happen, but at, at its best, it's to find a group of people with individual skills. You know, of course, normally normally there'd be a wonderful cinematographer. But anyway, um
0: well, there was <laughs> yourself, yes, was. and then, and then and then that lovely. I oh,
1: was on the street, but but yeah, that that mix of people I think is is really lovely, and I love that. And I, you know, a lot of the time people think directing is about getting what you want or controlling things, and and actually, sometimes it's that, but usually you have to do that when your team isn't <laughs> perhaps what you hoped. But at its best, I think directing is allowing these disparate talents to come together you know and 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 actually in my experience the really good people all that happens quite gently you know and and much of it unspoken you know and in this case uh, it was very much that that you know that bjorn and brian and stephen um you know and and john foley you know they all come together quietly and just you know, weave their own magic in in it. You know, my producer Mark Mann, also kind of great friend who I've known since my early days in Trinity. You know, he, you know, did a really deep dive into the archive. And you know, while we haven't depended an archive in this film, there is a lot of kind of very new, somewhat unseen archive, which I think was was really important. And
0: um, actually, I wanted to ask a little bit about clearing the rights. For yeah. stuff like that like I mean I know real art like it's a good budget but it's again for a feature I'm sure it gets very tight and if you're processing film and you know it, you, you're working with so many kind of good level creatives like I'm sure you know fiscal things cost a lot to organise was it difficult clearing the rights for everything were you able to get everything you wanted
1: uh, probably not uh, I mean it is very difficult you know uh, and increasingly so uh, like everything, um, things have become more legalistic and more, you know. And I think now, maybe because other streams of income are kind of constricting, uh, archive has become a huge, you know, many years ago when I started, you know, you could probably talk to somebody and say, you know, we want to use this and, you know, it's low budget. And, you know, people say grand, you know. Whereas now it's become very, uh, very stringent. Um, takes a huge amount of time on the part of the producer, you know, or archive researcher, you know, to clear things often to find things, you know the irony is it's easy enough you know, you you can go to our friends in the archive in the IFI or, you know, where other places are, TPBC, Pape, and it's easy enough to find the obvious pieces, but then often if you find something fresh or original um it's sometimes even hard to trace who owns that not alone pay for it uh so you know there's a huge amount of work in that um and and i think for anybody who's beginning in film particularly in documentary film you know that my advice for what it's worth would be to start early on that because it takes and it's often kind of detective work you know literally and you know, Martin's very good at this. You know, it's just literally detective work following, trying to find it, first of all, then trying to find who can uh, who can agree to license it to you. And also, of course, you'll find sometimes a number of organizations are licensing the same piece of archive, uh, which is complex and curious. Uh, but then it is very often very expensive, you know. And, um, you know, in... in you know, in the kind of more modest uh, areas, you know, there were a lot of people on this that were very helpful to us as well, you know, who who liked the the colour of the project and, you know, some of the writer's estates were very generous to us. Um, and then, of course, you know, Neville Isdall's collection, not just the photographs, but all his kind of writings and work, work, um, Owen O'Brien was very kind in opening that door. You know, Owen was a very key part of this in, in opening many doors to us.
0: God, so it's, so it's just a matter of clearing music or clearing anything like that, because you think like things that are so close to being out of copyright, if they're not already, there'd be a freedom there. But, yeah, no, there's...
1: And it's more complex. As the years pass, it gets more difficult and more expensive. And, um, you know, I think anybody... Who would see a documentary budget, particularly a historical documentary? You know, I mean, I I wouldn't know the figures or the percentages, but it always seems to me the archive is huge, in most budgets. Um, so, yeah, start early. That's yeah. that's my advice. You know, there's a lot of kind of online panic. Jesus, where's the? Uh, have we cleared the such and such yet? And um, but anyway, anyway, God, we get that's,
0: uh, behind the curtain, like it, it looks so seamless yeah. <laughs> when it's up there, sure. and you yes. like. It- yeah so tell me a little bit about saying maybe the difference between working on a project like this that is again something so long form um, so shifting and moving and then something so I would say almost like difficult subject matter something so linear and structured like the meeting was that a very conscious choice to be doing one while the other because they're so different or what? yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think each project has its own kind of inner rhythm. And I like that. I like the difference. You know, uh, you know, the meeting was kind of unusual and strange in its own way. Um, but even you know, one of the problems with directing, and I kind of like that side of it sometimes, but you know, say if you do a, a a relatively big feature film, you know, an awful lot, which I enjoy and I like the logistics of that, uh but an awful lot of your time is spent managing, you know, managing, emailing, uh, organizing, um, controlling. You know, um, and a small, intimate film like this allows far more freedom. You know that that actually sometimes in some productions, maybe more conventional productions, more traditional productions, uh, I often think at the end of it, how much time. Did I, as the director, spend creatively and how much time did I spend administratively, you know, or organisationally or, uh, you know. And and I often think that the, the creative time must be minuscule compared to the actual kind of management time. Whereas actually in something like Ghost of Bagatonia, you know, nearly all the time was creative time
0: yeah that and it's and it sounds very nurturing as well <laughs> like it's very uh almost ethereal like it is dealing with these ghosts of creativity and like a little bit of them peering over it, all of our shoulders as irish creatives that it's you know like you are and you're paying homage to these like larger than life characters but also seeing the humanity in them which is lovely
1: yeah yeah no it was i mean this was a lovely project to do you know uh... You know, it's a small film. It's an experimental film. It's perhaps not for everyone, but but, you know, I'm very proud of it. And, and I kind of I love the experience yeah. of it. And, and and I'd also hope I, you know, a lot of people who I've talked to, you know, have lived in that area. You know, it, it was a time when I couldn't afford it now, but students would have lived there. People having sits in Fitzwilliam Square or, you know, and. So a lot of people who've kind of moved through the area in their life have very fond memories of it.
0: I'm sure uh, even McDade's like there's many a night <laughs> oh, had creative conversations over like a over yeah. slightly gone off wine in McDade's. And that was the joy of it.
1: Yeah, totally. And so so lots of people have a kind of uh, affinity for the area. And. And one of the things if it even happened a little bit is that if you watch the film and then you go for a wander or you walk home or whatever, that you maybe just see the, see that part of the city in a slightly different way, you know, because the film hopefully may have just opened your eyes or your heart to it.
0: Yeah. And just tell me a little bit about, it. so it's released in the ninth. Where can people see it?
1: It's in the IFI in Dublin, in uh, the Triscoll in Cork and, uh, um Solace or the Palace, sorry, what am I talking about? The Palace in Galway. You know, so perfect for me, perfect cinemas uh, across across the country. And uh, sure, it'll it last as long as people want to see it. But, you know, I, I'm kind of aware December's a kind of crazy time. So, yeah, it opens on the 9th. And I think, uh, you know, getting early would be my advice. But, yeah, I think, you know, you often hear filmmakers, I'm sure. Nearly everybody you talk to says this. Oh, you know, film is meant to be seen in, in the cinema. And that's not always true. But I do think there's something kind of immersive of this about this. And a few people have said to me, you know, might have seen it online and then saw it in the cinema, you know, that 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 this I think really, even in a practical way, works in the cinema. You know. Oh,
0: definitely. But uh, well, thank you so much. It was such a beautiful film to to watch. It was it was really lovely. And um and like that so immersive. And and again very it had just such a unique pacing and and, and, and tone and it it was lovely. Like it was really as a viewer and a joy to watch, genuinely.
1: Very good and, and lovely, lovely to talk to you.